this, but this is a thought to kind of put in our brain as we launch in this idea of teaching. Uh, we have the most earth-shattering news, the most eternally significant news, and I put here we should at least be interested in broadcasting that to the best of our abilities. And so that is the idea, the overarching premise of teaching changes lives. And I'm going to mention this multiple times. We are going to look at both the formal and informal side of things. However, most of what we talk about will be the formal side. And when I say the word formal, that means it's in a classroom setting or in a a speaking, public speaking setting. However, any principle applies to the informal side of teaching. And for, for all of us, I do want us to kind of lock in on this. Everybody is a teacher. There's no way around that. You are teaching somebody. You're, you're, you're interacting with somebody. And so no matter what we look at here, I hope that we can apply that to all of life and what we do. Um, however, again, the examples are going to structure around in a formal teaching setting. Um, there was a point in Jesus' ministry, it's John 6, when he says some things that are really difficult. And because of what he says, many of his followers stop following him. And I was going to read that, John six sixty six to 68. It says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? And then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And I want you to realize as people were pulling away from Christ, because he said some things that they were having a hard time listening to, Christ then asked the twelve, are you going to leave as well? Are you going to wander off? And, And I hope that we can answer with Simon Peter that regardless of how people may be wandering and moving and, and how, how close our world may be to Christ and not close, and we see that distance, right? There's different times in society and in different cultures where people seem more, I'm using the quotes, more God-oriented or less God-oriented. I hope that as believers, we can answer like Peter says and say, no, where would we go? What else could we be talking about? What could be more important? Because that's what Peter is saying. You have the words of eternal life. And I hope that as we look at teaching, that's the thing that lodges in your brain a little bit. That regardless of the feelings of uh, guilt slash conviction, maybe you've been thinking about teaching, maybe not. Uh, Regardless, we know the words of eternal life. And will we put energy into communicating those to the best of our ability? Because that's what we're trying to do. How can we best teach the words of eternal life? Because teaching changes lives. I don't want to lose sight of what we teach and why. And that in of itself should be motivating. We should all have, and I'm going to throw this out there, a passionate desire to communicate God's truth. And you might be sitting here and say, um, I'm not a big in the teaching. I'm not big in the talking. You should still be passionate about communicating God's truth in whatever format we are given to do that. Uh, obviously, some of us have the uh, privilege, and I believe that's what it should be called. It's a responsibility, James 3.1, to teach, uh, but it is a privilege to teach. Actually, when we talked this morning about evangelism, So you get a heads up on one of the points. It is a privilege to evangelize. It's not just a burden. It's a privilege. And so we are privileged, no matter what format we've been given, to be able to teach. And so some of us have the opportunity on a weekly basis to stand up and have people listen to what we've been able to study and prepare. That's a privilege. Um, And that's something I think people have gotten confused and they treat it as status when it should just be an honor to get to work and teach and study. So as we look at this idea of teaching, how to cultivate your teaching, how to be more effective, it's going to boil down. If you want to boil all these principles down, it's going to come down, Howard Hendricks notes this, to that passion to communicate. So as we are diving in here, are we going to grow or start 
a passion in our heart to communicate. And I'm going to expand that definition to communicate his truth. He tells of an 83 year old woman. This is decades ago that attended a Sunday school convention that he was teaching at in Chicago. Uh, She traveled from Michigan by Greyhound bus the night before to be at the convention. He and some other speakers saw her, knew she was carrying the convention bag. If you've ever been to a convention, right, you're very noticeable because you're always hauling around stuff. I always think to myself, I'm like, can you just give us the stuff on the last day? I always don't have to haul it around with me wherever I go. And they invited her to eat with them. So they're meeting her at a hamburger joint in a recess time at a convention, let's say 30 plus years ago. He says he started talking to her. She's at a church with a Sunday school attendance of 65 people. She teaches junior high boys and has 13 boys in her class. So if you do quick math, this 83-year-old woman teaches 20% of this church's Sunday school program. And and I'm reading in this book, Howard Hendricks has this, and he's one of those premier communicators, not alive anymore, but just amazing at communicating uh, for, for Christianity, for Christ. He's living by the book. He wrote that book as well. And he says, anyone else would be breaking their arm, patting themselves on the back to have 13 junior high boys among 65. But he, the asker, why in the world did you come here? Why come to this convention? It seems like at 83, with a Sunday school program of 65, and you're teaching 13, that you would say, I'm good. She said she, she came because she wants to make sure she's not missing some way, something to better communicate to those boys. Is there something I can learn? And, and the reality is she had a passion to communicate that I hope all of us can get or grow, a passion that would have you on a Greyhound bus to go to a convention in another state in a huge city because you hope to communicate a little better to the class you have of God's truth. Um, And then I want to emphasize this. I hope we all, I'm going to emphasize the all. Uh, I know everyone here is not going to fill a Sunday school teaching slot, be an Awana teacher, or even fill in for me when I fall off a ladder. So there's just so many opportunities that are popping up at City Light uh, recently. Um, But everyone is a teacher whether informal or formal, the point of the three weeks is to cultivate your ability to teach, uh, to connect with other people around God's truth and how to grow and see that grow in their life. And hopefully uh, our passion for teaching will grow. Uh, It's to better our ability to broadcast the most significant news ever. And maybe, and I throw this out there, maybe cultivate a desire uh, to teach in a more formal setting. Before I dive in, I'm going to look at two points this morning. It's uh, if you're going to teach well, then you're going to be a learner forever. And if you teach well, you're going to cause learning. So teaching is not how well you present your lesson. It's how well your students learn. But before I dive in, I want to share a little bit about myself when it comes to teaching. Uh, For years, from junior high up, so when we moved to Virginia, well, we ended up at the same church for years. So from junior high all the way through college, I went to the same church. I remember uh, in my junior year of college, uh, the leadership of the church actually approached me and said, would you be interested in teaching the college and career class? Now, let me explain college and career at that time in this church. Me, my younger brother, and three or four other people that we've grown up with since junior high. So this is not intimidating at all. This is about as easy as it can get. I, without even thinking twice, told them no and volunteered my younger brother, who then taught the class, and I supported him the whole way through. I had this much interest in teaching. It was... There was no sense of conviction. I I remember sitting through my brother Anthony's class and if he asked a question, I would answer it if no one else would. I made sure I was the most supportive brother you could imagine. It never dawned on me ever to have said yes to that. I didn't regret that decision at the time. I was happy being the best student and that was my reputation at that church. He can answer the questions. He's gonna at least pretend to pay attention. This is who I was. Fast forward, and 
obviously now I'm at a church and I'm preaching on a weekly basis. I was uh, recently married. There was an opportunity to study for your master's of church ministry at a college. I'm in the middle of getting my master's in church ministry. I have the same thought about teaching. I sign up to help in the children's program at the church I'm at, which happens to be my father-in-law as a pastor there. I made one stipulation when I signed up. Guess what that was? I don't want to teach. I'll help. I don't want to teach. Well, you get in and of course, no one cares what you say. And so before I know it, they're like, you need to teach a lesson. It was atrocious. It was the worst thing you've ever heard. Heather's trying to bail me out. It's bad. You know, this isn't, this isn't good. She signed up to help with the kids because she thought, well, if he's going to sign up and be perfectly useless, I might as well come and help bail him out if I'm marrying the guy. So, and then something changed. And I, for me, it was, it's, it's a, uh, everyone has a different um, entry point oftentimes into ministry, into speaking. Uh, for me, it went from no human desire at all to teach to a desire to teach. I went from avoiding every opportunity about midway through my master's degree to desiring to teach and pursuing that. And it wasn't honestly a class where I felt some massive conviction or guilt. I felt zero guilt about not wanting to teach. I, I just didn't, that wasn't me teaching in a formal class setting. Uh, but it all changed. Why do I tell you that? Well, I want you to realize that if you're sitting there and you've already decided, great, I'm glad Kenny's doing this course on teaching. I'm not planning on teaching in a class. I just want to throw out that story to you and just have an open mind. Maybe you don't walk away wanting to teach a class uh, anytime soon, but recognize that that desire can be changed in your life. And I hope that you would be open to Maybe how God would be leading and desiring you to work. Regardless, you will learn how to better communicate his truth to those around you. Uh, I remember I was watching, so I've been reading about teaching, watching videos on teaching, just kind of working through some things. Um, And again, it was Howard Hendricks. And he says, he says, I have so many people approach me and say, I can't teach. I don't like to talk. He says, don't worry. Teaching is 70% listening. So you're 70% there. And he talks about that kind of concept. Oftentimes teaching is listening. It is engaging. And that definitely plays the informal side of teaching, does it not? So if you're going to have an effect on someone's life, a lot of times it is going to be listening to them. It's, it's having a conversation. But diving in now, because I know time will slip away from me before I know it, uh, I want to dive into some of the things we're going to cover uh, this week. And some of these are more of an overarching principles that we'll dive into. As we get into the next two weeks, I'm going to get into some specifics about communication and things like that to help hone our skills. But first and foremost, if you want to teach, and specifically if you want to teach God's word, you must be a learner. And I put in parentheses, always. If you never want to be ready to teach, then stop learning, stop studying, stop searching, stop being curious, stop trying to understand. If you hit something tough in the Bible or in your faith, just gloss over it and push it aside. Do that and you will never be ready to teach. I can promise you that. You'll have dodged the teaching bullet, so to speak, and you will never communicate God's truth as God designed you to do so. Nothing changes a teacher like learning. And the idea of a teacher, if they're going to accomplish what they're supposed to accomplish, and especially in the realm of God's truth, is that you're a student among students. Second uh, uh, Peter 3.18 calls us, as the close of Second Peter, to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, you're going to both gain knowledge and grace. You're going to understand the truth, the theological significance, the, the, the nuance that's in the text, and you're also going to understand the grace of God and how that would be applied to someone's life. And so as you're studying God's word, you will grow in what his word tells you, and you also grow in his heart to communicate that truth to others. Because that's what grace is. Grace is what? Unmerited what? Favor, right? Mercy is not getting what I deserve and grace is getting what I don't deserve. And so if you're going to grow in the grace, you're going to be giving 
to others what maybe they don't even deserve, but you're going to grow in his grace and in his knowledge. Because ultimately, this is important to realize. We're not interested in altering just their behavior. But instead, we want to alter the student's thinking by God's truth so that their life will change. Uh, When you alter behavior in somebody, it is a very shallow fix. So you fix someone's behavior. The behavior is over with. Then they encounter a new situation where that behavior doesn't work. What do they track back to? How they, what? Think how they reason. As we study God's word and understand its knowledge, we grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. As we apply that and as we teach, that is going to come through in that we are going to change the thinking. I can say this. I'm not saying that we always accomplish it, but at City Light, we are consumed with being a teaching church, a church that is going to help um, the community of Christ grow. We're students together growing, but we are interested in changing how people think, influencing how they process, and that deals with uh, perspective. And that's never going to come from a stagnant believer. That's not going to come from things you've known for years on end and there's no, no worry. I know that stuff. I studied James years ago. I can teach on James. And the fact is you might be able to, but it's stagnant, is it not? There's no freshness to this. And it's not that there's some new interpretation. If you're reading Living by the Book, you'll realize that he's going to tell you there's only one interpretation that's accurate. There's many application. But the freshness of his word applied to the current circumstances is going to be completely gone from a believer who is stagnant. And that stagnant believer who stands up to teach, it's going to become obvious to that person's audience. And by the way, Kids are more intuitive to that than adults are. And I have an illustration that will show that later on. Kids pick up on stagnant. Adults take a little bit longer because they're trying to still wake up like the teacher is. But the kids are ready to go. They're fired up. There's a truth. If you stop growing today, you stop teaching tomorrow. But if, if you're going to be a learner, if you're going to teach, there has to be this idea that you have never arrived if as a teacher, you walk into a class, and, and, and I'm saying especially around the, the topic of God's word as we teach in the setting uh, of church and, and, and spiritual realm, and in our mind, we have arrived. I'm, I'm there. I don't need to learn anymore. I don't need to read anymore. I don't need to study anymore. It's not that it's not important. It's that I know it already. Well, the second you think you've arrived, it's over. And I would remind you again of that illustration. How old was that woman that rode a Greyhound bus overnight? 83, teaching 20% of her church's Sunday school program nestled in junior high boys. So you know that that's not a normal percentage, right? And they're not even normal people, right? Junior high boys are, are animals. I still remember an evangelist saying, he says, I can teach kids and I can teach high schoolers. But junior high, she says, you should just lock them up for two years and just leave them in a cage because they're like animals there, you know. So there's all different viewpoints on junior high. And I find it funny because so many illustrations are junior high boys. I'm like, they get a really tough, tough rap there. Um, One person wrote this. He says, I believe the greatest threat to teaching is satisfaction because the good is the enemy of the better and the better is the enemy of the best which is fascinating. This person wrote this in the 80s. Of course, there's that book that came out in 2000s about, it's, I forget, Collins wrote it. I forget the title, but it's all a business book about, you know, good is the enemy of better and of best. As a teacher, the second you think it's good enough or you've arrived, satisfaction is the enemy to being a great teacher because you're, you're happy with it. You're good enough. Uh, the teacher is primarily a student among students. I'm going to use as an illustration the series on Job that we're about to bark in. So this week we finish out spiritual boot camp and then we dive into a series on Job. Uh, I'm launching in this series not because I think I have Job locked down. And I even have a note here, show pile of books, but I forgot to bring them, so I can't. Um, 
But I've been reading about Job now for a couple months, intensely reading about Job. I've talked with people. I've talked to Chris on Wednesday about Job. It's because as we embark in that series, I'm a student among students. We're diving in together to understand God's word. Uh, What does that do when you learn and teach that way? Well, that learning hunger keeps God's word fresh and alive as it is taught and as it's learned together. The second you stop learning, again, I'm going to go back to this. If you want to be an ineffective teacher, teach from stagnant information. Teach from, from what you feel you know is good enough. I just preached or taught the teens on Wednesday night. I actually taught a message I had written 10 years ago. I rewrote the whole thing. I worked through the whole thing again. Doesn't mean I didn't keep some of the wording or the majority of the wording, but I walked all the way back through it. Why? Because I want to make sure it's connecting to them. The truth and the application was still there. The interpretation is still the same. It was on the, <clears throat> on the life of Lot. But the fact is, I'm going to go all the way back through it because I'm not going to teach from something that is stagnant. To teach well, we must be a learner and constantly learning. And I'm going to wrap that up in two things, some, some practical applications. How do you go about this? Uh, maintain a consistent reading and studying program. Leaders are readers and readers are leaders. It goes back and forth. If you're reading, you can lead. If you don't read, you're not going to make a good leader. Here's how you do this. Um, You want to help with teaching, but not sure where to start? Start here. You're sitting there and you're saying, I'm not sure I want to be a teacher. How about I challenge you to start studying like you are? Start reading, dive in. Maybe it's an hour a day. You say, I'm going to read. Um, Maybe you don't read a whole hour. Maybe you read a half hour and reflect for half an hour. Um, Remember when I mentioned on the Sermon of God's Word, I challenged all of us. There were samples out there. Uh, at least own a one-volume commentary. Have some information about God's Word and don't let dust collect it. Don't just have it so you can say, look what I have. You should be in it. So when you're reading through it, you should be reading that commentary so you can understand God's Word. That's what I mean by reading and studying. You're going to read God's Word and you're going to study. You're going to try to figure out what it means. You're going to dive into it. You're going to understand it. And I put here, make sure you reflect on what you read. So many people read a ton and they say, I'm not getting me out of it. Well, pause a minute and maybe read less and think more. Understand what you're reading. And I put here, uh, don't neglect books like The Pursuit of Holiness or Living by the Book or other key classics or books on God's Word that you can dive into that can help form and shape your life. Be a reader. But if you want to grow as a teacher, you also need to be learning about your students. Get to know your students. Um, For instance, if you're teaching fourth grade through sixth grade and you want to do this well, or you're thinking about being involved in the WANA program, which can be anywhere from four years of age all the way up to sixth grade, then learn all you can about them. If you're teaching a group of millennials, and I'm sure if you've known me long, I make a lot of jokes about being a millennial. If you're a millennial out here and that offends you, I don't care. Um, so just, just want to be honest with you up front. But you know, I've read books about millennials. I've read a book about how to mentor millennials. Why? Because I taught a college and career class. And so I'm going to read about this. I'm going to get in. How do they think? How do they function? What's driving them? It doesn't mean the books are all accurate. They're not. There's oh, so many generalizations. It's ridiculous. Because sometimes I read about my generation and I'm like, oof, I don't want to be them. You know, that's not me. And the reality is every generation is like that. Everyone hates them until they get older and they start paying the bills and then they hate the next one. And it just kind of cycles that way. And so I enjoy being a part of the cycle as my generation moves out of being the villains and someone else can be the villain. I'm like, good, that works out well. And it just jumps generations, by the way. So I forget what I am. Is it Gen X then if I'm not a millennial? And then my kids are not millennials, but they're the next generation. I'm like, oh, good thing my kids skipped that. You know, that's all those jokes. All that thrown aside, if you're going to teach a class and there's millennials in there, then you should have a driving passion, understand that generation in a general way. But you also need to get to know them personally. Uh, you should learn how to spell their name correctly. I should learn their name. That's my, that's my struggle. I have a hard time remembering names. 
So, hey, guy, and hey, you, that's, that's an indication that I have no clue what your name is. Yeah. <laughs> You've become a you, and that's, that's what you get to be, you know. But you know their names. You know how to spell their names. You know what their interests are. Um, there was an illustration given. This is, goes back many years. But it was a Sunday school department uh, in an era, I think, where they had a lot more of that department. You know, you had a supervisor, and they watched this. That This church was struggling with a certain class. They went through, I think what the, the person wrote down, they went through seven teachers in eight months. So this was not an easy class. Again, junior high boys, which I just feel like they pick on junior high boys. But again, just teach them for a little bit and you'll know why. Um, the church is talking to the specialist and, and he's at the church and he's working on the program, trying to figure things out. And they said, who is available to teach this class? And they list this person. And he says, it's the biggest mistake I've made in my life. But my thought about this person was, that's not a good prospect to teach this class. But no one else wanted to touch it. So they put this gentleman in the class. Within a couple months, the class is turned around. It's, it's, it's a thriving class. So the guy writing the book says, I, I invited this man to my house and I asked him, what's your secret? What are you doing? And he says, this guy reaches in his pocket and pulls out a black book. So this is before you have computers and all this other finagle stuff. And opens his book and he has pictures of all the boys in there. And then underneath, he has, has a hard time with math. Comes to church even though his parents don't care that he comes to church. And he told him this, and this is what I thought was fascinating. He says, I pray for these boys all week long. And I can't wait to get there on Sunday to find out what God is doing in their life. Well, you walk in praying for your class in that way where you're pouring your heart out for them and you're, you're, you're diving in and I want you to realize something and I know you're thinking, Kenny, you've given us no tricks on teaching. Exactly. Know your students. Care for them. Love them. If you think back on the person that's had the most impact in your life as a teacher, and this is not to negate a good presentation, I doubt it's because they made a great presentation. I'm guessing it's because they cared enough about you and you knew that. And I'm kind of putting this together, but if a guy's going to have a list and know about kids and, and what, what matters in their life and what, what's going to go on, then I have, a, I have a feeling that when he walks into class on a Sunday morning, they know he cares about them growing and about them learning and about them specifically. And those illustrations kind of carry all the way through. Some of the greatest teachers <coughs> I know talk about what turned the corner from them. And it was never the person with the polished presentation. It was always the person who cared about them. And so I'll say, always be a learner. Learn your content and learn your audience as you work through it. God will change their lives. Every time I hear that story, I read through it. It, it is convicting because I think to myself, huh, I definitely don't have a book filled with everyone's pictures and needs. And then I start wondering, do I even know a need that someone's facing <coughs> unrelated to the class? I know the need that a lot of people face getting here or getting here on time, right? They're tardy, 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 right? We know that, but it's all related to the class. We don't know what they're wrestling with, what they're going through. Are they facing financial pressure? Are they facing a struggle in a relationship? Are they uh, dealing with heartache from, from their children? Are they dealing with heartache from their spouse? Are they dealing with heartache at work? Are they under, under pressure uh, to finish a project and then a pressure to keep their job? Is there an illness in their family? Is there a personal uh, struggle that's weighing on their mind? Do we know that about the audience we're going to have? Um, I will note this down here. Uh, one thing, though, to avoid, don't label people. You want to be a good teacher? Then don't throw somebody in a box. Don't look at somebody and say, that one's trouble. You know, I'm going to label poor Mr. Lampy. I said, that guy's going to fall asleep. He's a sleeper. He, there he is. And I can joke about it, but what, what, if someone says you're a sleeper, what are you going to do? Prove them right, right? If you look at a kid and say, oh, you're trouble, that's like a challenge. That's like telling a kid, make my life miserable. See what you can do, how you can handle this. Don't label anyone. Don't box them in or write them off. 
I put here as another thought. You're looking at me. You say, Kenny, I don't teach junior high boys. One, because we don't have a junior high boy class, so that makes that easy. I don't teach third grade. Does that mean you get to forget about them? And this is what I want to challenge us as a whole class here, because I said not all of us will end up being teachers. Um, As we live the Christian life together here at church, regardless of whether you teach that group formally or not, I do want to challenge you to have a broadness to your social connections. Engage in conversation with a third grader. Anyone ever done that recently? I can't remember what kid my... Yeah, because you have a third grader, don't you? Think about this. Here's the one thing that's great about a third grader. Get them talking and you have to fill no gaps. They'll talk, 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 talk. Trenton, middle son, I think he's, I forget what grade he's in. It's terrible. I think he's in fourth, going into fifth. Too many kids. Um, Landon's in tenth. That's all I know. That's like a lock-in on that. And, And Clayton's in kindergarten. Trenton's right there in the middle. And I don't know how many words it's normal to speak, but you can times that times four or five. That's what he spits out in a day. And you know what he's looking for? Someone to listen. You just sit and he talks. And if you've had the best interaction, I've realized the best interaction with Trenton, him talking. There's no point in interjecting when it doesn't make sense because you're going to be interjecting all the time. Just listen. But that's teaching, right? That's connecting. Here's my challenge. And Chris and I have it easy, and a lot of you other ones have it really easy because you've got those little ones there. So it's like, yep, I got a conversation with 11th grader or 10th grader, done. Eighth grade girl, done. Whatever Trent grades is, let's guess it at fifth or fourth, done, right? I know Avery's first, and I know Clayton's. I can cover my gamut right there, right? That's cheating. Who do you talk to at church in that age bracket? Who do you engage with? And not in the creepy way, right, where they're like, oh, man, that dude's weird or that lady's crazy, right? I'm talking connect with them in some way, shape, or form. Talk with them. Be a teacher in their life. Guess what? We do a program for Sunday school that you're learning the same thing they are. There's not a kid in this church you can't ask about their Sunday school lesson except for this week. And by the way, they're they're learning about Paul and watching a video about the, the road to Damascus. So you can ask them about Damascus and how many synagogues that were in there and all the details there. But on a normal Sunday, you have plenty to talk about. And I know with my kids, I say, what do you learn about? Guess what their answer is? It's one word, God. I'm like, can you embellish that? Just can you expand on what you've learned? Does that mean their teacher didn't teach them? No, it's because they're going to give you the easiest answer ever. Find a way to get them talking. Hey, tell me about your lesson. I learned about da 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 da. Did you learn about that? How did you learn about it? What did you learn? What did your teacher say? Just get them talking. I want to challenge us to be teachers, even though we're not sitting in the classroom. Or I added the whole junior high boy, even if they look and act like an alien from Mars, just talk to them. And I, I use this, I'll try to embarrass Chris just a little bit, but uh, Landon's back there in the booth with them. Landon's in, in 10th grade. <laughs> I'm going to be in so much trouble if you tell Heather how bad I was at knowing my own kids' grades. The kids don't care, but Heather does that I don't know this. So, um, But Chris talks to Landon. He dialogues with them. They chat about things. Guess what? That's called teaching. That's walking in. That's mentoring. That's building a relationship. Um, yes, they sit in the same booth. That makes sense. But it takes an effort to talk to somebody, and it makes a difference in their life. So make a difference. Dive in. Know your audience. Be engaged. Uh, Maybe you're sitting here and you say, I talk to people that have kids my age. I'm going to talk to people that are in their 40s, in their 50s. I only talk to people over 60. I only talk to 20-year-olds. Break out of your social bracket. And I'm going to read a verse, part of it. It's part of fellowshipping and how you'll be able to exhort and encourage so much the more as you see the day approaching. You're not going to exhort and encourage anybody if you don't dialogue with them and you're going to have to branch out of your comfort zone. Some of us are, are, I call, extroverts by nature and we're going to dive in and we derive energy from other people. My father-in-law is that way. He shrivels up and, and goes to nothing if he hasn't talked to people. He'll talk to anybody. I'm not that way. I'm actually an introvert. If you have my choice, say, Kenny, can you travel by yourself or with somebody else? I'm like, eh, by myself, it's more convenient. I pick where I want to eat when I want my tea. No one gives me grief. I just do what I want to do. I can talk to myself. I don't care if people see me. I'm in an airport. I won't see them again. 
right? Some people can't handle that. Some people, but that's no excuse for me to say, I don't want to dialogue with people. No, I dialogue, I connect, because if I'm going to teach somebody, I'm going to be connecting with them. I'm building a relationship there. Um, I have a little blurb for those of us that, that think we're retired. I want to give a quote from a retiree. Uh, he said this, you may retire from a job, but you never retire from the Christian life. And he said a statement that really struck me. Too many believers are stepping back at just the point in time when they would make the most effective, they would be the most effective at reaching their world. So I want to encourage us. And you might sit back and say, ah, I've done this before. I, I don't feel like diving in. I don't, do I really have to engage that kid? I've talked to enough kids in my lifetime. You know, all these people are kids, right? Mr. Melampi says, they're all kids. Yeah, I've talked to them. Find another one, right? Keep, keep plugging away. We never retire from the Christian life. That's not an option to step out of. We're always living that life. Um, but now how about when it's time to teach other people, what is the next step? So, so remember, you never stop learning. And then what are you going to do as a teacher? And again, these are kind of overarching principles. You're going to cause learning. And this is a critical thought change. Uh, good teachers can't be focused on what they do, but on what their students are doing. I may present the most astounding lesson ever with a bunch of Greek and Hebrew words woven in there and it's, it's done with flashing lights and everyone's like, ooh, ah, that looks great. Did I teach if you don't learn? And a lot of people say, I taught. It's the learner's fault. But if you're a good teacher, how do you test what you've taught? By what people have what? Learned. The purpose is not to just have a good presentation or neat illustrations or to get a laugh, though all those things are helpful. The goal, and I'm going to list two things, is to reach, pe- uh, the goal is to teach people to think. Do you know what we want out of our fourth through sixth graders, our first through third graders? I want them to learn to think. I want them to learn to think biblically. I want, to learn, I want them to learn to analyze their life and make decisions that honor God because they understand scripture. They know the why and they know the how. Now, I say this all the time. I, I love teaching kids and, and I shoot for that third through fifth grade range when I'm doing vacation Bible school. They're great because they want to please you. They want, they want to give you the answer. Um, if you ask a kid, and, and this is where it becomes extremely you have to be extremely careful. If I'm talking to a group of how many kids and I take any one of those kids, anyone, you pick them, and I can talk them to being saved in a second because they want to please me. They want to make the person happy. That's why I like teaching kids. They're not as grumpy as you guys are. They're just sweeter, nicer, smilier. If you toss them candy, they're happy about it. I don't get no grief like Kelvin gives me about candy. They're just happy about it, you know, just appreciative of what's there. I have to pick on Calvin because I saw him there. I give him a little bit of a hard time. But, but that's not the need they have. There was one person making a joke, said there's this lady teaching a, a, a group of uh, nine to 10-year-old girls and talking about marriage and the importance of marriage. And he says, that had no application to their needs. He said it had something to do with her needs because she was single, but it had nothing to do with, with those nine and 10-year-olds. Guess what? When you're teaching kids and you're causing learning, then the application you're bringing is for them. It's for your, it's for your class. It's for your students. That's easy to give illustrations with kids, right? Teach the kids level, give them application that makes sense, understand who they are. So if I'm at vacation Bible school, I understand that every kid wants to do whatever I might ask them to do because they want to please as a general rule. And so when we have the people that, that will counsel kids, they're instructed long beforehand, be careful about yes, no answers. We want them to be talking to us. We want to understand what they're saying. We're trying to hear them. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about that. But that's understanding the bracket you're in. That's understanding your students, right? If I'm teaching my adult class and, and I'm working through and, and, and I know in my Sunday school class that someone is facing certain struggles and hurdles and, and heartache, then we teach with that need in mind. We cause learning to be to take place, right? We're, we're concerned with them to think about their life from a biblical perspective, I'm not just trying to coerce a behavior from somebody. It's easy to manipulate people depending on the person, right? I mean, there's some people who are, 
are easy to move along. Some people are cynics, so you just kind of want to do reverse psychology and you'll get them to do what you want them to do. There's a lot of ways to manipulate behavior, but that's not our goal. That's not learning. We're passionate about teaching people to think. So if you're wrestling with something and we're teaching a lesson and I'm teaching, then I should be prodding you along, not manipulating you along, but prodding along so that you'll think about your situation with the truth that's being presented. You're going to apply truth to your own situation. And then you're also going to teach people to work. Uh, do you know that thinking is work? It takes time and energy. Things don't just come to us. It's not the end of the world if a, if a kid walks out of Sunday school thinking about something and comes back on Sunday and they're still thinking, they haven't figured it out, and they start talking to you. Now that's learning. Now they're wrestling with truth and trying to figure out how to apply it. It's okay to walk away and come back in a class. Now I'm not saying as a teacher, like, oh, be as confusing as you can so everyone doesn't know what the world you're doing. But if you're dialoguing or interacting with God's truth and that's what's caused in the class, caused people to think calls people to work, right? They'll spend a week thinking and working and come back with a different appreciation for what's going on. I'm going to have an illustration here in a minute about someone who thought, uh, and sadly, it's kind of convicting because it was a fifth grader at our church and no one else picked up on this, not even me. And so it's kind of neat to see how they thought and interacted there. Uh, when we teach, our goal is to engage the student in a learning cycle, of I don't know what in the world this is. I have a passion to know what in the world this is. And so I'm going to grow in my ability with this and I'm going to apply it to my life and then repeat that cycle. We're interested in a learning cycle. We're not interested in an information dump. Most of education is oftentimes an information dump. You ever learn something and someone says, you might need this someday? What a waste of time, right? You know, you're going to forget 90% of what you hear anyway, isn't that comforting? At the minimum, if you remember 10% of what you hear, you're a genius. Some of you are like, man, maybe I know 12%. I didn't realize I was this smart. <laughs> what you hear and see, 50% retention. What you hear, see, and get involved in, 90% retention. What's the goal? Get people involved in the learning process. You ever been in a Sunday school class and you're like, man, I wish everyone didn't read. But you know, if people didn't read, they don't engage. They don't connect. They don't hear it. I love hearing other people read. Look, when I read, I read everything in my brain. I mispronounce a million words. They sound good to me in my head, but out, out loud it doesn't. But hearing other people read scripture, hearing them say it, where they inflect it, where they talk about it. But see, they're engaged. If you're reading scripture, guess what? You're more inclined to listen to that scripture. I know Heather teaches fourth through sixth grade. She says, kids love jumping up to read the Bible. They're right in it. They're diving in. Well, they're engaged. They, they want to talk. It's part of the learning process. I know that's a really simple thing, but it's staying involved in what's going on. Ask questions and then let people answer. Let it take place. Question the answers. Dive in, flesh it out. That's what it means. We're not just dumping information in. That maybe someday in some life circumstance will make sense, but instead we're engaging right now in what's going on. It's a, it's a certain amount of tension that, that drives the student to want to know more, to resolve, to understand the why, to go beyond what we even know. And by that I mean when you teach and cause learning, you might be surprised that the student will excel the teacher, which is the goal of teaching. We don't want to limit the student to what we know. And that's at the end, we'll talk about this box illustration and why that's so critical. Um, one of the, it was Howard Hendricks, he asked his teachers, he says, I ask all my teachers this, do you keep the people in your class comfortable or do you let the, their equilibrium be disturbed so they realize I've got to study God's word more and think more. I've got to try this out for real life. What would you rather listen to? And some of us answer this, right? We, we love to stand, uh, someone to come up and preach all the things we've already resolved in life. I had that, we had, we had a family um, end up leaving City Light um, and this is what they said. They, they talked to, and I was really appreciative 
uh, was Mrs. McNamara. She says, such and such people left the church, and she wasn't shy about finding out why they left. So she just said, why'd you leave? Well, we like this other church because he, he does evangelistic messages all the time. And Mrs. Mack didn't miss a beat. She's like, well, you're saved already. You need to come to church and get edified. You need to grow. You're comfortable, right? And that's the reality. See, they wanted to not hear anything new, not hear anything that would challenge their life because they don't have to make any change. So it's so easy, right, to sit back and hear someone talk about everything we already agree with them on. Instead of being convicted by Scripture, look, what we want to have, not that we're trying some random view. There's one interpretation of Scripture. We're not looking for new ones. But we're going to go into God's Word and study it and walk through it. I'm going to come back to the Job series. I, I am not emotionally thrilled um, to be diving into Job. I've avoided it. It's one of those things. I avoided Ecclesiastes a couple years ago and realized I'm avoiding it, so I taught it. I'm doing the same with Job. Job makes me uncomfortable. I was just talking to my mom recently. I said, Job makes me feel melancholy. When I study it, there's a, there's a weight that comes with Job. It is not the most lighthearted study I've done. And, and, but is it necessary? Well, is it the inspired word of God? Is it 42 chapters on suffering and a lot of bad information from friends? You better believe it. But you got to remember who included it in God's word? God did. For a reason. So we're going to walk through Job. Uh, why does Job make me feel uncomfortable? I have to preach different than I'm used to preaching. I got to walk through a book in a different way. Mark did the same thing to me. It forced me into a narrative when I like to preach a logical thing. I love James. Very logical. I love outlines. Boom, boom, boom. Makes sense. And then I got good at making them all start with the same letter or verbs or a noun. All very important things when you're preaching, Right. But then you get a narrative and you're just talking through a story. And then now I go to Job and I'm like, wow, this is poetry. I hate poetry. I do. I t- and I remember in school, I'm like, give me a long, I'll read a 500 page novel over, over a short poem. And I listened to some British preachers. And you know what they love to quote? Shakespeare. And every time they do, you know what I think? Why? I mean, I don't care. I don't care about Shakespeare. I don't, and I don't, I don't sound ignorant right now, but I love my novels and I love a lot of things. Poetry is such a wrestling, but poetry has a purpose though, right? Because when you start realizing poetry and music, and I like music, and you realize that's also poetry, and you start diving in, you get over your own preference, your own inclination. You see the beauty of God's word on display. And Job is some of the most beautiful literature that's ever been written. That comes from unsaved people will say that. It's gorgeous poetry. It's, it's well, well scripted and written down there. But it takes a lot of effort to walk through it. It's different. Well, it's worth it. It shakes up my equilibrium. And I think it'll do the same for you guys. Now, learning is a process. It's a logical process and a discovery process. And I'm about out of time, so I'm going to give you this one illustration and wrap it up. Um, actually, I might save that illustration. Well, I'll do it right now. We were teaching through the Old Testament on the high priest. And the high priest is not supposed to rip his clothes at all. They're not supposed to ruin them, destroy them, abuse them or anything. It was very important. And so as he's in Sunday school going through that, we're preaching or I'm preaching through Mark. And you get to the end. And what does the high priest do at Christ's trial? What what does Caiaphas do? He rips his clothes. That young boy goes to Sunday school, happens to be Heather's class, and says, hey, I thought they can't rip their clothes. Why did that one rip his clothes? And being a fifth grade boy, he has reasons. They're not right, but he had reasons. He thought through it. He'd wrestled through it. Heather says, hey, can he create this problem? He can fix this problem, right? So we're just going to bring him over. What's fascinating to me is I didn't include this in my sermon, but in my study, I had read about when does a high priest rip his clothes? He's only to rip his clothes when he's without any doubt that blasphemy, blasphemy has taken place. And so if you think of Caiaphas and how manipulative he was, there was a trial that was illegal. And then in the middle of that trial, he rips his clothes, which forced the whole Sanhedrin, who was all already ready to convict Christ, 
Now, if they disagree with the high priest, they're literally telling him, you sinned in ripping your clothes. He hasn't blasphemed. So he's being highly manipulative. Now, here's the thing that got me. I had taught a Sunday school lesson on the high priest not ripping his clothes as well. We all learned the same thing. But that means all y'all heard the same lesson too. Who thought of it? A fifth grade boy. Why? Because he got involved in the learning process and he started engaging with it and thinking through it. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit um, to look at an illustration here. And there are boxes, right? This comes back to teaching to thinking, changing thinking and having them grow or, or teaching for a product. And so much of Christianity is teaching for a product. And this represents, say, for instance, what I know about a topic. And as I pour it in, I will never be able to communicate all I know about a topic in a way that will go into the student's mind and heart in the same way. It will always be less. There's always leakage. There's always loss. There's always distance, right? So if my dad is teaching me something about his life and trying to frame it, the only way he can teach me He'll never teach me everything because his experiences now become secondhand experiences for me. And I want you to see what happens. This group of people follow that same pattern of product teaching. And guess what? It shrinks. And the reality is this, within two and three generations, you'll need a whole new evangelism coming in because they've lost the whole point. Because you've taught a product. I want a certain product. I want a certain look. I want behavior. And you can write that down teaching you this so you'll do things a certain way. Here I'm teaching, but I teach instead of a product, I'm teaching the learning process. And what happens is the student's box is bigger. Why? Because just like that fifth grade boy, he's asking questions that I haven't even thought of. And I've taught both lessons. I didn't think of this. He did. What does that tell you? It's not that he's smarter than I am. It's that he went beyond me in the, in the information, right? Beyond all of us asking questions that grew this dynamic. He was involved in the learning process. If that's repeated, you see the difference? We don't have a shrinking faith and understanding. We have a growing faith and understanding. And what we're passionate about causing to learn is to teach in a way that's not just saying, do this because this is how it's supposed to look and you need to look the same way. But instead it's, I'm teaching the process so they're actually growing with that information. They're, they're causing, they understand the how and why here. Here I'm just telling them what to do. Here I'm teaching them why we do what we do and how to interpret and think about scripture. And it changes drastically um, where they land. And the reality is, two to three generations, there's no faith anymore. And here we see a faith that is growing and expanding.